Sam, how are we doing? I've got a flip chart coming on stage, so get excited. Everyone's going to okay, but I even covered it up for you because I know you're going to sit here and be like, I wonder what it is. You'll find out later. Um, you'll find out later. Um, but i uh, really excited to be preaching uh, in this series, Our God Is. I'm actually wrapping up the series next week, so you get me on a double header um, because then I'm heading over to the UK. Uh, I won't be here for Easter. That's the kind of reaction you want to hear. Um, I'll be heading over to the UK. My sister is getting married, and so I'm actually doing her wedding. And so it means you get me two weeks in a row, which might be a great thing or might not. We'll have to see how it goes. Um, but get your seatbelts on, get strapped in, because I'm super excited that we're in the Psalms this year. Uh, if you don't know, a majority of our preaching will always uh, be somewhere in Scripture. Last year, we were going through the book of Acts. So this year, we're actually going to be camping out in the book of Psalms. And it's very specifically going to help us in our pursuit of our 2023 prophetic theme and prophetic vision for the year, His presence, this idea that His presence changes everything so that we can actually not just be with Jesus, but we get to look like Jesus and then be used by Jesus for His glory. Um, and as we do it in the Psalms, it's actually going to illuminate so much of what God has started already uh, in this prophetic theme for the year. Because there's two big characteristics when you get to the Psalms that are so helpful in understanding how it's going to push this vision forward for the year. Um, the first characteristic is that the Psalms uh, almost entirely are directed to God and about God. And so it's going to inform who he is. And when you get a picture of who he is, as we're looking at in this series, our God is, looking at attributes that are revealed in the Psalms about who God is, what you find is it gives us a picture not just of who he is as the eternal creator of the universe, but it reflects and mirrors and gives us a very clear picture of who we are. That actually God is drawing us into his presence and that when he does, he will transform and change so that we can look like him all the more. The second key characteristic is that the Psalms consistently speak uh, to our hearts and minds. And so God knew us, he knew us intimately as he made us. And he understood that even as we would fall and sin would enter and everything would go to parts, he understood that the biggest struggle we would have is in our thinking and in our feeling. And so he gives us the gift in the book of Psalms where he actually speaks to our minds and our hearts. And he says, hey, I want to align your thinking with my truth. I want to align your feelings, what's going on in your emotional world, in the experience you have in the flesh that I gave you. And I want it to align, not just with the truth I have given, but I actually want to help you filter it and transform it so that your experience of the world will look very different. Because our world, I'm sure as we have even uh, heard, is in chaos. Our world understands what it means to walk through valleys of shadows of death. And yet God gives us a very different experience in our thinking and in our feeling. And that's what the Psalms are really going to do. And so today we're going to be looking at um, Psalm 96. It's an amazing Psalm. And there's really two big headlines, and, and, and one of them is going to be so helpful in understanding worship, but the other is one that uh, sometimes we neglect and sometimes forget, but is so important to hold. The first headline you're going to see is that God is the only one worthy of our worship. 
I hope you've been hearing it in the songs we've been singing, setting up our hearts for that. And the second headline is that he is the God of the nations, that he has a desire for every tribe, every tongue, every person in every culture and every language to know that his, he is the God who created them, that he has created them with identity and value and purpose. And so why don't you read along with me? We're going to camp in the first nine verses of this psalm. It says this, you can go to it in your Bibles or follow along with me on the Sky Bible. It says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous work among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Why don't we pray and we'll get into this. Lord, as you have revealed in your scripture, there is no one who is worthy of our worship but you. You are great. You are good. There is no darkness in you. There is so much in the world that seeks our attention, but they are merely worthless idols. Lord, as we look at this instruction, this exhortation into your worship and your mission for us, Lord, it's my prayer and it's simple that we would be challenged, that we would be changed, and that, Lord, our thinking and our feeling would come in alignment with your heart, would come in alignment with your truth. Would you do a great work in us in these next few moments we get to share? We don't take it for granted. It's a glorious thing. Would you be with us? And everybody said, amen. So Psalm 96, I hope you saw it even in its reading that it is this instruction into these big ideas of worship and mission. And if God is the Lord of our life, if you have taken that step, can, it, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to work out that he then gets to inform what we think, what we know, what we say, how we feel, where we go, what we do. And Psalm 96 is really giving us this picture that God is calling us not just into the worship of Him as being a sweet spot for the human heart, but actually calling us into a mission. And the beautiful picture of the mission in the Christian world uh, with Jesus as Lord means that, that we get to walk out mission, and even that act is an act of worship. We get to play it out in so many different ways where this isn't compartmentalized, this is actually everything feeding into it. And look at how many instructional words you find through there. It commands us, it calls us, it exhorts us to sing, to declare, to ascribe, to worship. These are the things we're going to take a look at. And as we're going to, the plan of attack is to actually walk through these nine verses. And what I want to highlight and identify for us are seven truths that get revealed through Psalm 96. You can take note of them if you're taking notes. I'd encourage you to do so. Truth number one is this. Start with singing. We did that this morning. I hope you know we don't do that by mistake, but we do that because it actually lines up with what we see getting communicated in this psalm. It says, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. 
Before we get told to declare, before we get called into the mission, before we get commanded uh, to stand on His truth, we're told to sing. And there's something special about that because we, first of all, get to mirror an action we see in God Himself. Zephaniah uh, chapter 3, verse 17 says this, speaking of God, He will take great delight in you, but, you, but will rejoice over you with singing. The picture of God before we ever sing a note or direct worship to Him is that He has already sung over us. That there is delight and rejoicement, if that's a word, uh, it's not, over us in God creating us. I'm a preacher, I get to invent words. It's helpful. But God has wired humanity in a very special way that singing does something crazy good. It does something crazy good in our heart because we're able to express emotion that words just cannot. Spoken word is something good, but we know when you sing something, suddenly the intensity raises. You get to, you take any human experience, when we are in our greatest victory, we sing. When we're in our greatest grief, we sing. Tomorrow's national shutdown, the Red Berets, they're going to sing. We all know that's going to happen. Because it conveys and does something to human emotion coming into the physical world. But why does the psalmist say, start here? Before he's going to say, declare the glory of God among the nations. Before he calls us into his mission, saying, hey, the salvation you have, take it to the world. He starts with singing because of two reasons. Number one... You can't call nations, you can't call people to do what you're not doing already. If we're to call people to sing, to ascribe worship, to to declare God's glory, how could we ever do it if we are not starting by doing it ourselves? Because the second truth is this, you can't give away what you don't have. If God's wanting to call out in His presence a people who have worshipful hearts directed towards Him, we have to be the ones who start with a worshipful heart. And so that's why you will see in our gatherings, we start with singing. Because there's something crazy. It's not just like group karaoke and we think it's cool. God's actually designed it that we start with this. That this is something that is not just going to convey truth about God. That's not just going to convey our our emotions in the midst of a community. It's actually something that is going to actually cross the physical and into the spiritual. It's a worship of God like no other. And so it says, start with singing. I want to highlight some of the the phrases that come out, because it says, sing to the Lord. It starts out by being very specific, saying to the Lord, that actually we can sing, and we know this, humanity can sing and not direct it to the Lord. But it first starts out saying, get your worship right, get its direction right, direct it to the Lord. It's actually saying that the human heart, when it directs, uh, it's a worship and it's singing in a Godward direction, something crazy happens. So before we call others to direct their worship to the Lord, we sing to the Lord. And then it brings this phrase, a new song. And you might ask the question, why does it specifically say a new song? And I think what the psalmist is actually doing is touching on an ancient truth. It's an ancient truth that is still so important for us today. That you do not make progress based on the spiritual gains of the past. Actually, God is the one who says in his word, behold, I am doing a new thing, don't you perceive it? Because with God, it is always a new thing. He is always moving us in a new way. And so when he calls us to worship, to sing, to declare, he says, well, we sing a new song. 
because we don't walk forward on the spiritual gain of the past. The wind of yesterday is not going to be wind in your sails now. It's going to be God's presence itself. And if we're in relationship, it means we get to walk this thing out day by day. We get to sing a new song. Truth number two, our God is great. I hope you saw it in all the language. It says, sing to the Lord all the earth. Not just you, not just you sitting in that seat, not just those who have made Jesus. It says, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. It's a reminder of the bigness of the God that we actually get to direct our singing and our worship to. It's a reminder that we are not dealing with someone who is small, but in fact, a God who is vast. We're dealing with when a God who is so strong that there is no one stronger. That when it comes to the bigness of our God, no one is bigger. I have two toddlers. I can't say toddlers because one's four, one's two. The four-year-old's not a toddler. She's a preschooler. But I can tell you they're both still in the stage, and I love it, but I know the stage is going to end very soon because they believe that dad is hero. They believe dad is the biggest, strongest guy in the world, and no one can touch him. We actually were watching, and on ESPN, this thing popped up, and it was the world's strongest man, and you have these behemoths of units of gentlemen who can literally, quite literally move heaven and earth, boulders the size of cars, and I, I, I felt really warmed to my heart, but Lilybeth looked and said, wow, dad, those guys are so strong, but I, but I know that you're stronger. <laughs> to her, I am the biggest, strongest thing in the world. It's going to end. <laughs> but amazingly, when you get to that kind of kid heart that says, hey, my dad can beat your dad up. When we talk about the bigness, the greatness of our God, there's no one that beats him up. There's no one bigger. There's no one stronger. There's no one that can step to him. There's no one that can give him a bad day. There's no one that gives him a run. There's no one that can give him a rumble and a ring. His greatness is beyond anything we can imagine. Isaiah 40 even reminds us, he brags on how big God is. This is what he actually says. He, he says about God, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked out the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed mountains in scales and the hills in a balance who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows from his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as the dust on the scales. And then verse 28 says this, We've looked at it in this uh, series. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. There is no one bigger. Now, Psalm 96 will start out with a declaration that this is the God we worship. This is the God we sing to, that he is Yahweh, the God of the Bible, creator of all. He created to the ends of the earth. The heavens, everything is under his power. It says, sing and bless his name because his name is the authority over us. It leads into truth number three. Salvation isn't just for you, it's for the world. Look at what it says in verse two. Continues, it says, sing to the Lord, bless his name. And then it says, tell of his salvation from day to day. 
What salvation is it talking about? It's talking about our salvation, the salvation of you and me, what God has done. It says, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. All of this language, this worship language, sing, bless his name, actually then sets a foundation of worship. And what does the psalmist do on the foundation of worship? It now comes in a, uh, and builds on a structure of mission. Actually says, tell of his salvation. It says, do it day by day, meaning there should be a consistency and a constantness in the mission of God and what he calls us into. That we get to tell of our salvation. We do it day by day, and it means in all situations, at all times, to all peoples, we're called into his mission. It says, tell of his marvelous words, declare it among the nations. I want to take you back, if you remember when we were in the book of Acts last year, we did a series called Expansion, and, and this was a theme that kind of kicked through all of the book of Acts. We spoke about this concept that the expansion of the gospel and the good news of Jesus had this dynamic where it started in Jerusalem, then went to Judea, then went to Samaria, so now it crossed racial boundaries, economic boundaries, and then to the ends of the earth. And we watched that happen from Acts chapter 1 to Acts chapter 28 when it got to the end of the known world at that time. And that expansion is how God has always set his mission. And so it's important that we know that when we're called to this foundation of worship and God builds a structure of, wor of mission on top, he always talks about it comprehensively. That it is about us reaching Jerusalem where he has placed us because he's done that with a purpose. There are spaces, places, relationships there. But then he also says, don't forget Judea, where you have regionally been placed. Don't forget the nation of South Africa. And then he says it goes even wider than that to Samaria. So don't just, it doesn't just go to nations that look like you. It crosses those. And then he says, to the ends of the earth. And that doesn't mean, cool, if I'm good in Jerusalem and Judea, I stop there. It means I am active in the mission of God in every single dimension of what he has called. That leads to truth number four. We see it there as it calls us to declare our God is for the nations. It says declare his glory among the nations. And what Psalm 96 is talking about here in the word nations is not what we would imagine as political states or bordered countries as we would know right now in the present world. What he is talking about is people groups actually talking about um, people groups where there's a specific ethnic uh, culture. There's lines of culture and language that are drawn and identified. And the, the heart of God is that he is for every single one of them. And his heart and his mission is that in every single people group, every single nation, every tribe, every tongue, his salvation would be made known. And he actually calls us to be a part of that mission. I want to remind you of some stats. We've looked at this in the past. Um, but, the, uh, but peoplegroups.org uh, have these stats going and they're pretty clue. Uh, you start out in the world 8 billion plus people with just a little over 12,000 people groups, 12,030. The circle then gets smaller because then they actually track unreached people groups. And that's 7,220. And so that would be considered pe a, a people group who have a very self-identified specific language and culture that is separate to everyone else who are considered unreached. And the line they draw in terms of it being unreached means that there is less than 2% indigenous Christians within that group. 
less than 2%. And so it means that the chances and the uh, effectiveness of any mission happening there where actually indigenous people are able to actually uh, evangelize and share the salvation to their own people group is quite low. And then it gets worse. Of the 7,000, you squeeze it down again, and you get to what are known as unengaged, unreached people groups, and there's over 3,100 of those in the world. And that means quite literally, we're talking about 0%. 0% Christianity effectively in that indigenous people group. So there is a 0% chance that they even can hear, that they could even know that Jesus is Lord that he has a salvation for them. Because chances are, they probably have a language where it hasn't even been translated into. It reminded me of what uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 10. He says, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of who they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? We're commanded in the psalm. We have to remember the nations. We have to remember that there are those who are outside of our, our, our realm of thinking, who are outside of our sphere of little influence and those that we are connected to, those that we can have uh, lines where we connect, uh, maybe ethnically, maybe linguistically, whatever. There are those that are so cut off, so far removed, and God actually calls us and says, hey, I want you to be a part of this work. I want you to be a part of this mission. And so the what is clear Go declare among the nations. The how is often where we get tripped up. The first how is, well, how do we feel about that? And the truth is, when we look at, the, at, at a psalm calling us to declare God's glory among the nations, God's world mission, God going to the ends of the earth to engage the unengaged, to reach the unreached, we have to be honest with ourselves. In our feelings, we're pretty apathetic. We get excited when we start to talk about, hey, let's walk across the room. Hey, let's impact our city, Jerusalem, Judea. We can get that. It starts to get a bit harder when we say, well, Samaria means we cross racial lines and economic lines. That's a bit tough, but, but we'll kind of get there. But suddenly when we say, hey, let's go completely out of our comfort zone and let's go to the ends of the earth, maybe that's someone else's calling. We have to be honest that there's been great periods of the church where we have failed in our evangelism to the nations, in declaring the glory of God to the nations, where we've shrunk back into fear, fear of failure, or we've shrunk back into a culture of apathy and tolerance that says, actually, I'm not gonna go against my comfort in order to, call, to do what God has called me to do. We might get excited by so much, but this is something where we're apathetic. But it actually can get fixed when you start to ask the question and say, okay, well, what if we got involved in this? What if we actually began to journey in obedience into what God has called? When we start to ask the question, well, how could we declare the glory of God amongst the nations? What we actually find in Scripture, when you get to the New Testament pattern and principles in the world of missions and going out and declaring to nations where you're crossing over uh, ethno-linguistic boundaries, what you actually find is that God actually uses two categories of people, goers and senders. Every, all of the New Testament mission, there were those who were called to go. 
God calls them, they go. They cross the lines. They get in, in, engulfed into the culture. They uh, contextualize and help and understand and learn languages and move and go into nations and, and live in situations where there are, is no one who is like them, no one that thinks like them, no one that has their background, no one that understands their culture and they don't understand theirs. There is those who are called to go and then there are those who are called to send who actually can help the goers in bringing resource. And so they support them in everything, finances, in, uh, spiritually, emotionally. They actually are supporting those who are called to go. These are, the two, these are the two categories that God has set. But amazingly, what do we do? We invent a third category because we don't like these ones. And can I tell you, God's calling you to these. This is the two categories he calls us to. But we invent a third category and we now become watchers. We spectate. We don't invest. We don't get involved. We don't honor the call when quite literally what we are talking about is people who cannot know the gospel. People who, when you speak to them about Jesus, they quite literally have no idea what you are talking about. Amazingly, I, I want you to know this. We'll be honest as a church, as a leadership, we've had this heart. You go right back to our, our vision in 2020. Hope for, anyone remember it? Shout it out, hope for, Joburg, hope for, South Africa, hope for, humanity. Can I tell you, we've had the heart for this and there's been practical things that have got in the way, whether it was COVID or lockdowns or travel. But we really as a church and even as a leadership, we're saying, how do we, not neglect? How, how do we not get caught in spectatorship in this thing that God has called us to? And amazingly, what, what, what will be happening in the next little while is taking our first steps to partnering, to actually being on the ground in declaring the glory of God in the nations. And so in June, Vaughan is taking a small team uh, to the western province of Zambia, where we're connecting with the Zambia Project. Now, the western part of Zambia is an interesting place. It is the sticks. And there are so many people there who live, and quite literally the work they've done over the last 20 years, they've planted over 170 churches. They've brought clean water to 65,000 people. Uh, they've actually administered over half a million medical consultations uh, in very rural areas where quite literally there is nothing. They actually can draw a line, a red line, and say this is how far we have gone with the gospel. And I promise you, if you go beyond that line, you'll get to a village, talk about Jesus, and they will look at you and say, who is that? And so as they are doing this work, we get to partner with them. And so this will be our small scout mission team to see how we're actually going to partner in the western province of Zambia. Um, myself and Sai had a genesis moment of this where we actually were down in Georgia and we met with a guy called Paul Vancola who leads Hope Church in Georgia and they actually had planted the Zambia project 20 years ago and then 10 years ago planted Hope Church in Georgia uh, having handed over leadership of Hope Church in Mongu uh, in Zambia and so we get to partner with them because their heart is that they would partner with churches and teams and ministries to declare the glory of God amongst the nations. And so we're dealing in people where there is unengaged, unreached, where there is uh, nothing there and we're able not to just bring the hope of Jesus, which is amazing, but really get to touch their lives and bring in clean water and bring in medicine and bring in these things that for us is sometimes so casual. And yet for them, that, the life expectancy in Western Zambia is 29. I heard that stat, it's nuts, 29. 
We think we've got it rough. Sometimes we need to realize we don't. Now, sometimes God will be call you to be a goer and you're going to go. But can I tell you, he is always calling us to be a sender as well. And so it means we need to be aware. It means we get to have an activity within God's going. That's what he's calling us to do. And I want you to know, as a church, we're very serious about taking those steps. We don't ever want to be spectating. We don't ever want to be on the sideline. And you get to be a part of that with us. Next one. Truth number five. Worship the creator. So what it says in verse four, it continues. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but... The Lord made the heavens. The psalmist says you can look across creation and you will find many gods, small g. You will see people bringing their worship to these gods, but these are worthless idols. And he points to the one who is only worthy of worship alone. He says, God, the God of the Bible, Yahweh himself, is the Lord that made the heavens. I know you've been waiting for my flip chart. Here it comes. Um, a question that often comes in this idea of worship is we can get that God is the creator, the Lord of the heavens, the one who made the heavens. And so if you have creation, you have the land and the sea and the sun and the moon and the stars and everything in creation that you could imagine, what you're going to find actually is that God can lay claim to the worship of creation because he is creator. Does that make sense? If he is the creator over creation, it means he gets to lay claim to it. Why? Because in his creation of the land, of the sea, and even of us, humanity, he had a very specific plan. He was the God who could give an identity he makes a tree and could call it a tree. He knew what it would do. He knew how it would work. He's also the God that can give purpose. So he creates an animal who needs to reproduce, who needs to eat, who needs, he gives it a purpose. And then he is the God who also in his creation can define value. He defines value by his creation. Because he says, actually, based on my goodness, my greatness, I can bring value in what I create. So he gets to lay claim to all of creation, including humanity. This is actually what Abraham Capus says. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not call mine. Now the question mark comes in. God might have the right to claim worship from all of creation, including us. But if he screams over creation and even over humanity, mine, is God not being selfish or greedy in laying claim to that worship? This is often something that uh, people struggle with. If God created us and he created us and there's this innate thing within us to worship something or someone, and by worship I mean we ascribe the greatness of something to it. We ascribe it as greatest value in our world. Is God being selfish or greedy in laying claim to that worship? It's a really good question 
But there's a key that I think unlocks the answer to it. That actually says God isn't being selfish or greedy, but that in fact he doesn't just have the right to claim our worship, but actually that our worship of him is set up for our best, for our flourishing. And the key is this, that in our creation, in us, in the world that we find, what do we have? We see worship, even in this psalm, declaring that we are a people who worship. So we will declare something of, in our lives that is of greatest value. It's why you could make yourself your God. It's why you could make the sun and the stars your gods. It's why we see people worshiping the earth itself, whether it's some sort of pantheistic. Because what we find is our worship going out into creation. And as it goes out into creation, what Psalm 96 is wanting us to know is that that worship is so inferior because these things are worthless. Because what is better? If our worship is declaring this thing is of greatest value, then it means that when we work in creation, there will always be something greater. Because there is a line here between created and creator. And so what is the greatest form, the truest form of human worship? Worship of our creator and not worship of the created things. Psalm 96 says this is our problem. We choose creation over creator. We actually get so caught up in the gift that we forget the giver. That actually the worship of creation, the worship of created things will always fall short in light of worship of our creator. It leads actually to our very next truth. Truth number six. Creation reveals truth about the creator. It declares that God is creator. He's the Lord that made the heavens. And continues in verse six, because what do those heavens, what does creation itself reveal about God? Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Creation reveals truth about the creator. I'm going to put a creation up on the screen right now. Uh, Four-year-old Lady Beth drew this. It's now actually on our fridge. It is a work of art, let me tell you. That is our family. It is her creation. She is the creator. And what you know when you look at that picture is you can get hints and, uh, and it will reveal something about who drew it. You'll probably work out that she's four. We're only dealing in one color. It's purple. But you're also going to get a picture as to what she values. And so there you'll find our family. Uh, you've got me. Apparently, I'm much rounder than I thought I was. <laughs> We've got her mom. And then you've got our dog, Potato. So if you want to know what my child values, she values family, because this is actually a picture of us uh, having a pillow fight, all of us together. It was her favorite thing. It is literally her favorite thing. So you can value what she has said. She has said, this is what I value, my family, and don't forget Potato the dog, because he makes it into the picture. We know that when we look at something that has been created, when we look at what it what. It, what makes it up, when we look at how it has been created, it's going to communicate 
attributes and truth about the one who created it. And so the psalmist is saying, take a look at nature itself. Take a look at creation, the created world that he has made. And what do you find? Splendor and beauty and provision and seasons and sunrises and sunsets and animals that are great and insects that are small. His fingerprints in nature are actually going to highlight the value that he places on life, the value that he places on beauty, the value that he places on his focus in the detail, in the small and in the big. It speaks of the value of our God. Romans 1 verse 20 actually puts it this way. It says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. That which was invisible God himself, the creator, has been made visible in creation ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. The psalm is calling us worship the creator because look at what creation speaks about the creator. Actually, this uh, reel popped up on my social media this week. And it highlighted, again, humanity's problem. It highlighted our fatal flaw and what we know we do and what the psalmist is actually calling us against and warning against. Um, Has anyone ever watched uh, uh, Hot Ones? It's an interview thing. Sean Evans interviews celebrities, and he feeds them like crazy hot sauce on chicken wings. And they go through different rounds, and it's like scary level heat. Like if if you know the Scoville scale, we get into the millions. Like it is absolute crazy. And watching a celebrity sweat is just fun. And Sean Evans had on Hot Ones an episode with Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's an astrophysicist. Uh, He's the director of the Hayden Planetarium. He's been on the Big Bang Theory, which to me is the greatest part of his resume. Um, And he was speaking about it also in the midst of like his mouth on fire because they just had hot sauce. But he was making this, and it's completely valid truth. And yet the conclusion that they get to um, is actually the flaw of humanity. He's describing to Sean Evans and saying, when you take a look at the structure of the human body and, and the ingredients that make us up, the four biggest ingredients, the four most active atoms that are included in the structure of the human body, this amazing feat of engineering, hydrogen, carbon, oxygen, nitrogen. And he said, then you you mirror that and you contrast it to the four main ingredients in the universe, the stuff that makes Jupiter and the stars and the everything we know, four most active ingredients, hydrogen, carbon, uh, oxygen, nitrogen, same order, actually, same quantities, basically. And he says the beauty and the specialness of humanity is not that we are made with special things because they're everywhere. We're actually special because we are the same. And Sean Evans makes a comment, and it literally is the flaw of humanity. He says, I am the universe. And Neil deGrasse Tyson doesn't correct him. Because we look at creation, and we think we are special because of how amazing creation is. But we forget that when we look to creation, when we see its splendor, its majesty, its beauty, the question we should be asking is, who made that? Because the one who made it, if this is how splendid, how beautiful, how majestic his creation is, how splendid and beautiful and majestic is he? Creation always reveals truth about the creator. It shouldn't be the thing that makes us look inward to ourselves. It shouldn't be the thing that says, hey, we lay claim to the worship. 
of our very own hearts. It says actually the perfect position of the human heart is to declare worship and to ascribe worship as it continues to the God of the universe. Verse 7 continues because it says actually that this will happen in his sanctuary. That's really important. I'm sure you've heard as we've been kind of going through this year that the place of his presence is his sanctuary. And so we're dealing with a God who is desiring to dwell with us as humanity. And so in his presence being made known through creation, he actually reveals that his presence is in a sanctuary where he's calling us to draw and drawing us in. He's calling us into that relationship place. And then it gets into, well, how do we enter into that sanctuary? Verse 7 and 8 tell us, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the people, Ascribe to the Lord, what? Glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. This is how we enter the sanctuary. This is how we enter into the worship of our creator. This is how we enter into the majesty and the splendor and the beauty of who our God is. And it says ascribe, which literally means to acknowledge as the source or cause of something holding to what is true. And so when we ascribe worship, what we're saying is, God, you are holy. Why? Because God is holy. When we ascribe glory, when we say there is none, no one like you, we can say that. Why? Because there is no one like our creator God. It is true. And we acknowledge him as the source and the cause of it all. And so our mission, even as we enter into his sanctuary, enter into his presence, bring him glory and strength, the goal is that we would ascribe worship and glory to him and we would call others along with us. We would enter the sanctuary. We would bring an offering of praise. We would bring an offering of thanksgiving. And we wouldn't do it alone because salvation isn't just for us. We would bring others into it. We would ascribe. Last one is this. This is where we're going to wrap up the bank and join me. Truth number seven, holiness is our dress code. When I read this, it was the first thing I highlighted, circled, underlined. It, it hit me like a train. Verse nine says, worship the Lord. Again, what are we doing in the sanctuary? We're scribing worship. We're again commanded, like we're going to worship. But it talks about the how. How are we to do it? In what manner are we to do it? Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. The word here for holiness actually can be also translated as holy attire, a holy garment. And so he says, when you walk into my sanctuary, what you will be doing is ascribing worship and glory, but what you will look like what you will wear is holiness. Now, I don't want you to get the wrong picture of this because it's so important. The picture of the good news of Jesus, the picture of God's presence being made known to us, his truth being revealed, is not that we are unholy and then we put on a holy garment covering up all of our unholiness so that we will be made acceptable to God. Because that would be a picture of hypocrisy. The picture of the good news of Jesus, the picture of the gospel, is that we are first unholy things. We have been marred by sin, broken by sin. The image is not there. We're not perfect. We don't measure up. The picture is holiness, perfection. We fall short. We are unholy, you and me. But the amazing thing is that in Jesus, 
The picture of him on the cross is that he is the holy one, the perfect one, the sinless one, the blameless one, the lamb of God we're going to hear about on Easter. That him in his holiness actually took on our unholiness as a garment. That it was actually enrobed onto him on the cross so that in his sacrifice, dying on our behalf, we could now be made holy. As all of our unholiness was placed on him like a robe, we now get made holy. And the robe that gets placed on you and me is a robe of holiness. You're not putting a, unholy, a holy thing over an unholy thing. You are being made holy by Jesus, and he enrobes you in his holiness. So when we walk into the sanctuary, we get to ascribe worship and glory, but we do it differently because actually we get to do it empowered by him. We get to be ones who were made holy and now can even all the more look holy. We get to look like Jesus, his presence, all the more, because we get to put that robe on. This is where I want to end. When we look to Jesus, I want you to know that he is the only one we sing to. That when we declare glory and strength and honor and praise, it's directed to him because actually, as the psalm even touches on, all of creation is already worshiping him. We get to join in with the worship of all creation because he is king. I want you to know when he hung on that cross, when he wore our unholiness, he bled for the nations. He bled for all people. He didn't just bleed for you and me. And he didn't just bleed so that we would be saved and we would keep it to ourselves, but that we would actually be ones who would tell of his salvation day by day. That we would know that we're called to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth because his glory needs to go to every nation, to every people, to every heart, to every tribe, to every tongue. Because all of creation is already worshiping him. He can lay claim on its worship and he has right to and it is right for creation to. We get to join in with all of creation as we worship. We get to lift up and bless his name because it is holy, because it is good, because it is great. And we get to declare it to a world that doesn't know it. To a world that has been duped by worthless idols to a world that actually is settling for created and not seeking creator. That's what we're called to do. That's what the world should do. And the fact that we get called into that mission is crazy. It's a privilege, and it's a beautiful picture of what the gospel is, the good news. Why don't you stand with me? Jesus, as we prepare our hearts right now to worship you, to again, to just declare how good you are, how great your name is, I pray again you would be doing a work in our heart. My prayer at the beginning was that we would be challenged and we would be changed. Lord, would you do a challenge in our heart? Would you highlight where we have maybe fallen astray, where we've maybe neglected, where we've taken our eyes off the prize? And Lord, for anyone who hasn't taken that step to say you are Lord, maybe today is their day for salvation. Maybe today is the day where the unholiness that is within can be made holy by Jesus so that we can walk into your sanctuary and we get to do it without fear. We get to do it confidently as a child walks to their dad.
You're the perfect father. You do not fail. You are faithful. You are good. You are powerful because there is no one who can step to our dad. There is no one who trumps you. There is none greater. So, Lord, we lift up our worship. We honor you. We glorify you. We want to, as the Psalm 96 called us to, ascribe glory and honor and praise to you. Let us be a people who do that. Let us take it seriously. Would we be challenged? Would we be changed? Let's carry on and sing together.